Good morning, church. Well, it's a joy and privilege for me to speak today. I'm very grateful for the opportunity uh, to speak while uh, Pastor Cody and Pastor Steve are running around in New Hampshire in the snow and uh, speaking God's word to the men who are there. And I'm sure, ladies, they won't eat too much, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, but if you'll turn to the book of Acts, please, chapter 17, for our, a message today, and we'll be looking at verses 16 through 34. So many families, including my own, have taken some time over, over the years, over the last few years, we've discovered a little bit more about our heritage, where we came from, our ancestors. Um, we've done a little bit uh, from our surnames and uh, trying to discover our family tree using tools like Ancestry.com, perhaps, or, uh, or even visit, visiting uh, cemeteries where our loved ones are buried. Uh, we can benefit from some online tools that certainly can make the job a little easier. A number of years ago, one of my daughters uh, took the time to use the service 123andMe, Ancestry DNA and Ethnic Test, and her goal was uh, to see what kind of ailments that my wife and I have passed on to her. <laughs> and um, it wasn't really that helpful to her. But uh, you see, knowing your family of origin uh, can help you discover your connection to your, your own past as well as who you are today, what your life is like today. So on my mother's side of the family, my mother's name, very unusual name, Smith. So I've always heard that I'm related to the good Smiths, not the horse trader thief Smiths. And we have relatives all over the country I heard that we were, I don't know if this is true, we were related to Captain John Smith, maybe, and uh, that one of my aunts, aunts, was a Hatfield of the Hatfield and McCoy family, you know, that family that uh, didn't get along for a long time. Now they have family reunions and picnics together, it's all, it's all fine. But when I moved to Plymouth County a number of years ago, I, I met a number of people uh, in, my, in my, in actually all my churches I've been in, part of, that said, oh, Larry, we're, um, we're related to the people who came over on the Mayflower. And, um, or, and I didn't argue that, of course, but I also heard, well, we're related to some of the patriarchs like and some of the patriots like John Adams. No, not those patriots. 
but the early forefathers who came here. So in the book of Acts, Paul is reminding these Athenians that he's speaking to that they consider their own background so they can discover who they really are, but also who God really is, who they are and who God is and what he's like. It's a city full of idols and shrines, but Paul shares a message specifically to those on Mars Hill, which is going to challenge their thinking about the true God, their own identity, and especially the life-changing message of a resurrected Savior, which they knew very little about. So turn in your Bibles to Acts 17, or take one in the pew. I'll be reading beginning in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing else except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, 
We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And Father, we pray that these words would speak to us afresh and anew today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we've studied here the book of Acts over the years, and we know that it's the dramatic story of the progress of the gospel. The apostles uh, had a very clear strategy. Beginning in Jerusalem, they would be witnesses, and they would go to Judea and Samaria, and then to the rest of the world. They normally took the gospel to the Jew first, but as God directed them and as they moved out into the Gentile world, they began to go to other communities in the Gentile, Greek, and Roman world throughout Asia Minor. And in Acts chapter 17, Paul continues his journey, and he makes a teaching visit, as he usually does, first to the Jewish synagogue. And then, after their response, he's going to go to the Gentiles, or the Greeks, in Athens. We find it interesting to see what Paul used to try to reach his audience. He used tools in Acts 17, like persuasion and reason and logic and explaining and proving. In some cases, for those who knew the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures that pointed to Jesus. And he found in Berea that there was a group of people who, it is said, they were more noble. They listened. They took the scriptures very seriously. But he also went on to Athens where he debated with the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, to simplify uh, their philosophy, Epicureans we would call call today um, probably seekers of pleasure, or they would be pleasure lovers, narcissists perhaps. And Stoics would be people who have very little emotions, who would be like the Amazon robot that's fulfilling your order. They don't have many ups and downs. Everything is on an even keel. And so he's going to speak to them in Athens using their own writers and philosophers. He's going to create some curiosity in their minds. He's going to use what they know to speak to them about God. And so he's going to create uh, some questions for them uh, that uh, perhaps they should think about. And they were known, by the way, for debating ideas. That's what Athens was the global center for. Discussions, 
and ideas. I don't know if we have a good parallel today <clears throat> in either the media or maybe some of our universities, but it's, it's not too complimentary what he says about them that they basically took all their time <clears throat> um, doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. So that's what was going on in Athens. And as he's waiting in Athens, <clears throat> he's coming in verse 16 to this very troubling observation about them. As Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, this is actually a very strong word. <clears throat> we would also say that this word could be translated deeply distressed, anguished. Uh, Paul was upset. Now, it's similar to what he felt like in Romans 9, <clears throat> when he says in verse 2, I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And we would also look at Jesus' own reaction <clears throat> on Palm Sunday when he sees the city of Jerusalem and he weeps over it, saying, would that you have known on this day what would make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He's distressed. He's troubled. He's heartbroken over their confused condition. Now, friends, would that we might sometimes feel this lostness of our communities today. Ignoring, not understanding, <clears throat> not following the Lord Jesus. But this is heart-wrenching for Paul as he's preaching his way through the cities. He engages with them in the marketplace and proclaims the good news of Jesus <clears throat> as they say things like, what does this babbler wish to say? May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. What are these strange foreign gods you're talking about? It's possible to be the most educated, cultured, and intellectual members of the community, but totally ignorant about the reality of who God is. And so as he speaks to them, notice his approach. He says in verse 21, I know that you're very religious. Now the classic definition of this word religion, religion we've heard many, many times, I'm sure, is this is man's efforts, man's attempt to reach God. You know, we have major religions of the world. Other translations that could be used here would be I know that you are very superstitious or pious. You're curious. And you embrace many ideas. They have many idols in Athens. And really, they do get the prize for the most gods in one place. Little gods. They have the full number of gods. They have Greek gods. They have Roman gods. They have Zeus. Ares, Hermes, Hermes, 
maybe, I'm not sure of this, Iron Man, Spider-Man, and Superman there in the courtyard, plus literally dozens of Greek goddesses from Artemis to Aphrodite. I don't believe they had the crystal skull of Akador from Indiana Jones. I don't think so. But they have an altar to an unknown god. They're looking to find God. Where is he? Who's the true one? Can we know him? Can we understand him? And they had heard, at this point, bits and pieces, just a taste of who Jesus was, but not very much. This word, theoagnosto, an unknown God, is where we get the word agnostic. Agnostic. One of the most tragic words that you and I will ever hear from our loved ones and friends. Agnostic. The, the meaning of this condition is, I just don't know. I'm just not sure. I don't really understand. It's not clear to me who God is. They had an altar of the 12 gods at Athens to ensure that none of their gods was left out. You want to include them all, you know, in Athens. But what they don't know, Paul's going to proclaim to them. He's going to in give information to correct their misinformation about spiritual things, a spiritual fact check for the Athenians. That's a good thing. It's important. A.W. Tozer says, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so Paul begins to proclaim in verses 23 through 26, this creator God, what is he like? And he talks about the God who made this world, this creator, unique, powerful, that he's not dependent on man. He's self-existent. He's self-sufficient. He's non-material. God can never be managed, contained, served by man, duplicated, manipulated, humanized, downsized, compromised, or minimized. Amen? None of that. You can't put him in a box. You can't label him as you want him to be. He is uncreated, eternally existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He does not need us, but we need him. He's unchanging. He's all-wise and all-knowing. He is the author of life and the originator of all families and all nations. Now keep in mind what we have here is just a small Twitter feed of his message. Just little bits and pieces of what Paul said, probably for hours in that place on the Oropagus. But this is the information that they needed to hear. This is what they, they needed. Because they were still confused. He also tells them about humanity, who they are. And he tells them how God has placed people all over the earth. He's given them allotted 
boundaries, times, nations to live in. Think about that. It's no accident that you live at your street address, where you are, the town you live in, wherever it is, Weymouth, Hingham, Pembroke, Duxbury, Rockland, Norwell, Quincy, wherever it is, your address. No accident that you're there today, situate. You're there for a reason, and God knows. And so all these people groups that have been moving and migrating over the years, all ethnicities and races and nations and families have come over the years to settle and to live in a certain place. Even as we read in Ezra, sometimes God moves people back to another place and he returns them and he moves their location as he has designed. But with all of that diversity, he says we have a common origin in Adam. We all come from the first man and woman, Adam, and we are all, as C.S. Lewis says, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And that's where we all originated from. And this does not get said enough today about people, that is that we have more in common with our fellow humans than we have differences. We have more in common. We're part of the human race. We're part of the human condition and people. With all the diversity that we emphasize, you're really not that different from other people. And we've been given common grace as temporary pilgrims on this planet. Sometimes we think that we can, you know, it's just easy for us to just move and go someplace. Um, that great philosopher, Dr. Seuss, says in his Oh, the Places You Will Go story, you have brains in your head, you have feet in your shoes, you can steer yourself in any direction you choose. But the reality is, is <clears throat> sometimes we really can't do that. <laughs> and God moves us and places us and calls us to certain places to live and to be. Uh, when I was called to a church in New England, in Abington, I was living in a very quiet rural area in New York. And I, I remember it was the winter of 1995 and 96 when it snowed every weekend for about 12 weeks. And uh, I was pretty clear that I didn't want to go to New England because I heard spiritually it was stone cold. They wouldn't embrace evangelicals like me. I heard that uh, it was, it was um, liberal, it was stony ground, and the people talked funny. 
I thought. Now I talk like them too. But God has a way of moving us along. And even though we don't understand sometimes why we are where we are, God has placed us where we are today. On this planet, I don't believe that men are from Mars and women from Venus. That's just a rumor. I don't believe it. But what has he given all of us, mankind, humankind, specifically in verse 25, he's given us life, life. You are living today. I am living today. Psalm 139, verse 13 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book was written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. God knows your life, your person. His supernatural, miraculous, perfect, ultrasound vision of you. A fully accurate, high definition, beautiful design that he has planned. He can see, plan, and form tissue, cells, muscle, bones, organs, hands, and feet. He's given a unique DNA to every unborn child. The first event that I went to in, uh, in Abington ministry event was a senior meeting. And a dear little old la- lady gave me this, this little precious feet pin. It's the exact size of a 10-week unborn baby. It's about this big. I never saw her again. But it reminds me that every life is a miracle from God. We all had tiny feet and hands that small at one time. God has given us life. He created life. Life is a miracle. Um, Those of you who have a memory of children being born or grandchildren being born, you know this. He's given us breath breath. And Job, with all of his troubles, there's an attempt to comfort him and rebuke him, actually, because Job was very troubled, if you remember, in the book of Job. In 33, verse 4, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of, of the Almighty gives me life. So you have life, you have breath, you're breathing in, you're breathing out. Every breath we take, every heartbeat we have is a testimony of God's sustaining power. He literally breathes his life into us until our final breath. We are totally dependent on him. Selah, pause. Think about that. And he's not only given us life, he's given us breath, he's given us everything else. (laughs) Or all things, same word, all things, 
Everything you have is a gift from God. What does that mean? Your skills, your talents, your work, your wealth, your homes, yes, even your car, your natural and spiritual gifts, ministry gifts, physical characteristics, flaws, children, friendships. For proud Athenians who glorified in their city and their intellect and culture, architecture and diversity, this must have been truly humbling for them to hear this. That what you see, all this glory, all this splendor, all this artwork, all this architecture, is actually not something from you. God is the originator and designer and author of it. It's kind of humbling, isn't it? How much more, listen, for us here, we live in a regional hub of education, medicine, finance, culture, the city of Boston, Massachusetts, well-known throughout the world. But whatever we have is from God. Amen? All those blessed things, all those gifts. But why has God blessed us? In other words, to what end? That's what he's after with the Athenians. To what end? To what end? So that, in order that, because they might seek him, literally fumble their way toward him. And the picture I have in my mind, maybe, maybe it was for you early this morning, of getting up in the middle of the night, you know, you have to get up and go, and go to the bathroom or whatever you need to do, and you turn the light on and you can't find that switch and you're making your way, or perhaps you remember when your children were small and they had toys all along the um, floor and you're fumbling your way to them. That's what he's hoping that they will do. Deep down inside that God had planted his image in them that we might find our way to know him, the light of the world. The awareness of our humanity can create curiosity in our creator, God. He's not far from us. You see, the journey for them is not just to find yourself. Okay, they can know who they are. That would that'd be helpful. But to find the one who created them, that he exists, that he is there. He's the great I am. I am who I am. Seek and you will find. He has put eternity in our hearts, as it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that only he can fill. You know, you've heard that from Blaise Pascal. It is his being that we seek to know and to understand. So then, so then, we recognize that it is his power that we live and move, we locate and have our being. Every breath, every heartbeat, every step, every brainwave is a gift from God and we look at our fellow human beings, including the person next to you, in front of you, behind you, unborn, young and old, as well. It's a reminder that as Stephen Curtis Chapman sang, I can see the fingerprints of God when I look at you. Because you're in his image. You are in his image. You are a masterpiece of creation from unborn to final breath. Their poets describe this. They heard this from their own philosophers and people. Their own language. 
Now, the Greeks generally did not believe that God could be known personally, or that is, his powerful qualities, the strength and power of uh, people like Zeus and some of their gods, at the same time could be balanced with more human qualities like justice and mercy, love and compassion. So something was missing, something they, they, they didn't have in all this panoply of gods and shrines and, and worship. And that's the answer that Paul was going to reveal, the mystery revealed, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And this, by the way, is where now the intensity rises in Paul's audience. If you read the book of Acts, everywhere where Paul is preaching, they may listen, but when they hear the word Jesus Christ, something changes. There's a response. It stirs up people. They have to react. The mood intensifies, just as it does today. And Paul speaks of Christ as a righteous judge. There's a coming day of judgment and accountability for all people. He's appointed a man and a day, the Son of Man as proved by his resurrection from the dead. The Greeks did not believe in a bodily resurrection. They did not believe that there would be one who who would be like God, who would rise again from the dead. But now, Paul says, because he is both judge and savior, because of that, they need to repent. Their former ignorance is no excuse. Their justification is no excuse. Their intellect is no excuse. Their training is no excuse. Their philosophies are no excuse. This Christ is the name above every name, truly God, truly man. So what will you do with him was their response. And some mocked them, Paul and the apostles. Others wished to know more. Now, we're, as we said, we're getting a brief snapshot of his comments on Mars Hill. But there was two believers named in Acts 17, a man named Dionysius the Arapagite and a woman named Damaris. And others believed as well. Now, all that we know about Dionysius the Arapagite was that he was probably one of the Arapagan court, maybe uh, would be considered a senator of Athens. And he became a believer in Christ. But many others tried to cancel Paul just as best they could and to push him out of the city. And because of Paul's commitment to Christ, he would not stop his proclamation at Athens. He would keep going. He went from Athens and on to Corinth. He moved on to the next place. And by the way, Corinth was far more receptive to his teaching. Now, we can make personal application where we live today. The gospel of Jesus Christ is still spreading. It's spreading right now. It's spreading today. What started in Jerusalem is still going to the nations hearing this message. Yes, in their own culture, their own language, sometimes from their own people. That's ideal. But Paul's strategy was to become all things to all men that he might win them to Christ. He knew how to speak to the Jews. He knew how to speak to the Athenians. 
He knew what the Greeks were thinking, and he knew what the Jews were thinking. And so he tailored his gospel presentation to them both. And we can be a part of that harvest, too, here at South Shore Baptist, locally and around the world. Everywhere that he went and everywhere that our missionaries are sent, we can have an expected harvest. It may be small, it may be slow, but there will be a harvest of a remnant of believers. Some will respond, and some will, of course, not understand now. They may understand later. So what are we as gospel proclaimers? We're respectful but clear. We correct misinformation about God and man, and especially Christ. And we remember that we have so much in common from the person who doesn't live where we live, who doesn't look the way we look, and doesn't think the way we think, perhaps, but we have a lot in common with them. The King James Version of this verse says literally one blood, from one blood. Now, hearing that they are from one blood was an eye-opening moment for them because all that they had experienced was the thought, our gods are better than your gods. We have more gods than you do. The more gods, the merrier. The more idols, the merrier. And it's not hard for us still today as human beings, fallen human beings, uh, to chase idols. We do that naturally. <laughs> you know what your idols are in the world today, but we chase them naturally. And John Calvin says our nature is a perpetual factory of idols. If we don't worship something, we will tomorrow. We'll find something, we'll make something up to worship if we don't worship God. But God is not an unknowable being. He's revealed himself to humble hearts through Jesus Christ. Still, he invites you and me to come to him with all of our doubts, with all of our fears, with all of our failures. Still, Jesus is calling, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come to me. He can forgive. He can give you rest for your anxious heart. In a world that seems to tolerate everything but truth, we celebrate a Savior who does understand where you're coming from, where you've been. And today you can enjoy through faith the full salvation of the second Adam, the man from heaven, Jesus Christ. Do you trust him? Do you know him? Are you following him? John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, in his later years says, said this, although my memory's failing, I can remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great savior. Christ is a great savior. In Christ, we can be made new on the, out, on the inside. Old things can pass away, new things can come. In Christ, we have a, 
a better sacrifice, a better redeemer, a better promises, better covenant, better hope. The true eternal God is not unknown. He's revealed himself to those who humbly accept his word. And I pray that you know him today as Lord and Savior of your life. You've trusted in him for all of your eternity, all of your future, all of your hopes and dreams. Knowing Christ, knowing God, can be a great adventure for us as well. Yes, we can learn more. We can grow more by worship, by prayer, by service, by Bible study and fellowship, by studying great books on theology like Knowing God by J.I. Packer, by knowing the true God. It's our greatest joy. It's his greatest pleasure, our greatest aim in life. Westminster Confession of Faith, question one. Man's chief end to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's it. That's it. Unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you that although our world is very different from Mars Hill, and yet, Lord, around us in our world are idols and false gods and misinformation about Jesus Christ. And yet, Lord, our hope and desire is that the truth of who you are is not unknown to us and that you are not a God far off. You are a God who is near, that if we just reach out and seek to know him, that we can know him and trust him with our life. We can trust you as the true, living, eternal, and merciful Son of God that can forgive our sins and make us children of God for all eternity. And best of all, we can know you today and forevermore as our Lord and our Savior. And we pray that this would be true with each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.